Disinformation and all the dark arts of hybrid information warfare are a major threat to victory against Russian aggression in Ukraine. Disinformation seeks to create an image of Ukraine as an enemy and obtain a social mandate within Russia to implement Putin's imperialist policies. It also seeks to destabilize society and force Ukraine to sue for peace on Moscow's terms. Today, I'm speaking to Dmitry Zolotukhin, a media expert, political analyst, and lecturer at the National University of Kiev Mikhail Academy. He co-authored the Doctrine of Information Security of Ukraine, which was adopted in February 2017. He is author and leader of the training course, OSINT Academy, and founder of the Institute of Post-Information Society. Dimitra is also author and editor of the White Book of Special Information Operations Against Ukraine 2014 to 2018, and was Deputy Minister of Information Policy of Ukraine from 2017 to 2019. He researches the evolution of information wars and the tools of narrative regulation. He is also working on the creation of a Ukrainian strategic narrative, which is enshrined in the doctrine of information security within Ukraine. Welcome to the channel. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we're going to explore the evolution of Russian propaganda narratives about Ukraine and how they're projected into the Ukrainian information space and around the world. But before we do, I'd love to know, how did you get into this area of research and what really attracted you to it? Oh, man, uh, you know, I can talk about these days and nights 24-7 because uh, it uh, started in my career way before anything uh, was familiar to people about the disinformation and fakes uh, Way before 2014, um, uh, I started my career in uh, Ukraine and counterintelligence. This is an open information. And uh, uh, part of my education was also the revealing of the active measures, so-called active measures, as it has been called in theory of the uh, special information uh, operations in a theory of counterintelligence. So basically, this is my profession. And uh, uh, now, after all these years, I'm still saying that our biggest problem that in 2014, uh, people who started to use the terms like propaganda, disinformation, special operations, they were very, very far from being experts in the field and professionals in the field of covert operations uh, that's uh, being done by special services. I'm not saying that media experts and journalists have nothing to do with the issues of uh, the disinformation and uh, fakes and, and lies in the media. But in my humble opinion, this is the first step that we have to make together to recognize the fact that all this stuff that we are talking about started uh, its lifetime in the sphere of special, uh, special services, in the sphere of intelligence. And the main task of the intelligence is to fool people, to fool other people. Usually this task is aimed on the people of other, other states, other countries. So the aim of the domestic intelligence, I mean, I mean domestic agency uh, intelligence of your country is to fool someone who is against your country. So who is out of, out of uh, your state somewhere else just to preserve the interest of your state. And this is normal. This All, all special services do this. Uh, DGSEA in France, then uh, in Germany, CIA uh, in the US, and the Ukrainian uh, as uh, 
uh, as uh, Zetar. So uh, first step that this kind of my profession, I started this uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a graduate of the Academy of the uh, Security Service of Ukraine. Then after I uh, quit, I, re I uh, went to the, I went to, well, it's not retirement. I just, I just changed my profession. I quit the special uh, service and uh, uh, I started uh, in, in, a, in a while, I started to work on the commercial market, doing consultancy, doing uh, um, uh, trainings, uh, trainings connected with the uh, social media marketing and the management of the information flows and uh, helping people to fight with black PR and uh, uh, maybe uh, some negative information. And it was, you know, 2010, 2011, uh, everybody was a big fan of uh, huge growth of social media. And I started to work with, uh, to cooperate with uh, people from Russian Federation. I went to some seminars in Moscow. I talked to them. I, I participate in different forums and blogs and uh, connect with them, discussing, you know, like new books, new challenges of the commercial field. Uh, we discussed, for example, the business rates of, uh, of business, which is uh, not very familiar to the Westerners, but in the post-Soviet countries, in the CIS countries, uh, in Russia, in Belarus, in Ukraine, uh, the business rates were quite popular in 90s. And part of the business rates were the uh, information campaigns, reputation campaigns that were aimed uh, on the special target audience, which uh, was, for example, the minority shareholders of the different uh, companies. So the aim of the information special operations was to assure the minority shareholders that the asset is being run very poorly. And uh, of course, it was against the interest of those shareholders because it was the manipulation. So that was a bunch of my activities back in times. And when everything is started in 2013 uh, with a massive and absolutely uh, in-depth campaigns uh, that were connected with Viktor Medvedchuk, who was, uh, 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 how they say, uh, you don't have this word in English. Uh, Putin was a godfather for his children. Mm -hmm. Viktor Medvedchuk is a leader of one of the uh, nowadays opposition pro-Russian parties. Now he's in jail. Uh, now he is under the prosecution. But then back in times, he was a leader of several uh, people's you know, movements uh, discussing the issue, how good that it to campaign with, uh, with Russia to do the customs union with Russia, not do the union, not do the association with European Union, because you know what? In European Union, there are some zoophiles, pedophiles, and different faggots are living. This is why we have to stick to our Orthodox brothers uh, in Moscow and stuff and stuff. So when 2013s and 14s uh, uh, came, I was kind of you know, familiar with all these instruments and methods that uh, that uh, were used by the special services. And Viktor Medvedchuk campaigns uh, was also the part of these uh, special services uh, methods that were directed to Ukrainian audience. 
So in uh, 2014, when the war has started, when uh, Russia used this uh, uh, proxy warfare and hybrid warfare to annexate Crimea and to start a war in the east of Ukraine, um, basically, I had an opportunity to uh, implement my knowledge and my uh, experience. And we started from the, in, in, uh, there was a special uh, government body newly made, uh, the Information Analytical Center of the National Security and Defense Council. And I was a volunteer uh, in this center working with uh, uh, the same people how to uh, manage the government communication absolutely ruined sphere. And uh, our product was the everyday press conference of the Colonel Lysenko, uh, who was our, um, in, if I may say, in some kind of uh, information weapon, because every day he was stabbing on the press conference, explaining what's happening in the territory of the anti-terroristic operation. So basically it was the same that now Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine is doing every day, daily delivering his uh, speech and his, his uh, notes uh, uh, online in the videos. Um, so, well, this is how it started. Then after some time, we have launched uh, several projects. Uh, as you said, uh, the OSINT Academy, the open source intelligence. Uh, my aim was very simple. I explained it uh, on, the, on the example of uh, such terms of, as uh, media literacy and, uh, uh, and you know, the, uh, uh, the critical thinking. Critical thinking and media literacy uh, became, you know, became the terms that are very popular. Mm. And so many people, they, they kind of, in my humble opinion, they mean different things under these terms. So I had my own meaning. I had my own proposal. I thought very, very practically. I thought uh, instead of discussing what are the media leaders in critical thinking, let's just make people Google. Let's just uh, uh, make them know how to Google. It's very simple. So if you are confused, if you, if you get some uh, information that you feel that uh, threatening you, or maybe it's uh, it's disorientating you. Just Google. Mm. This is like so very simple. What well, just so one not, word? It's not about convincing them of one point of view or another. Yeah. Pro Russia for this. It's just how Absolutely. do you search for basic information? Absolutely. Just just like make some make some job. Make just give the work to your hands. Just type a couple of keywords. This is not saying that you will be safe. This is not saying no one can guarantee you safety or anything in the information sphere. That means that you might get second, third, or fourth opinion, nothing more. So, and this is very practical in terms of like making people uh, media literate or making people critical thinking. You know, I usually use the, uh, this uh, um, correlation with the old uh, Soviet times joke, the anecdote. When uh, the uh, little hedgehogs, they, uh, I mean, uh, little mice came to very wise old. And little mice ask wise old, uh, dear old, uh, we are so tiny. We are so threatened by all other animals in the forest. What shall we do to defend our lives? What have, uh, have, we, what have we do? 
and wise owl saying, yes, I'm very old and wise and I have a decision for you. You, dear mice, you have to become hedgehogs. So you have to be hedgehogs because, you know, a hedgehog has those needles mm -hmm. on the back and they can defend themselves. And then mice uh, said, uh, wise owl, this is a perfect decision for us. This is so cool. But how can we do this? Because we are just little mice. So how we can become hedgehogs? And the wise old then said, okay, guys, I give you a strategy. This is your part of job to, to fulfill it. So this is exactly what's being done here in Ukraine all these several years, saying that Ukrainian people have to become media literate and they have to become critical thinking. It's the evolutionary process. It can take more than 10 years of the next generation until we got next generation that, for example, they're sitting not in Vkontakte, not in VK, not in Nordnoklastniki, or even not in a Facebook. They went to TikTok. So just generation, like, they didn't become media literate. They didn't become more safe. They just changed the, the way they think. They are just changing the way they consume the information. So this is evolution. This has nothing to do with the critical thinking of, uh, uh, you know, like making people think in, in another way. And there's just as much rubbish on TikTok. I mean, there's just as much uh, toxic material on that platform. It does matter. It does matter because this is the same. So people just just behaving this way. So in the end of the day, my humble decision that, that I try to promote, let's make them Google. That's all. Let's make them Google because Google can give you some uh, food to think. Mm -hmm. And it's it it cannot save you from anything it cannot make you safe so if you're done you're done if you uh like to consume some uh, uh let's be polite bad bad materials uh, from uh, russian federation uh, news sources and unfortunately we cannot help you uh well, what we can do we can give you google and google is a perfect tool and well of course it's not only google it's not only one service uh, however, you know that now Facebook and Google and big uh, big tech has also been accused in uh, ability to manipulate others because of the uh, because of the search agents, because of the uh, the, uh, the different algorithms that Facebook is using on the social media and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But uh, you cannot do anything with this you cannot assure people that your opinion is good and right and someone other's opinion is bad and uh, frankly speaking in my humble opinion this is what now really happening in the information sphere the disinformation as a term and as a sphere of uh, people's interest it absolutely finished it uh, i i believe that there is no disinformation anymore this is the way of thinking because the willing of the russian people to destroy ukrainians it's not because of disinformation it's because they evolved and they decided that the only way of living in, Ru in russian federation is to kill all ukrainians mm. well maybe it's a bit exaggeration but on the other hand when you like see those uh, TV programs on the Russian television, how they say that we're going to nuke you. Oh, no, we're not going to nuke Ukraine because we want to live there. We're going to nuke Great Britain. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I'm not. I'm not even Berlin, ready. Warsaw. It was just on Berlin, yesterday as well. Warsaw. Yeah. So this is not disinformation. This is literally how they think. So in the end of the day, we don't have to deal with disinformation anymore because it's ridiculous to fight disinformation because they really think so. So we have to, uh, like, we have uh, to admit to ourselves that well. Uh, this is psychological because if we're talking about disinformation, this is the way how the information flows. This is the way how you got the news. But if you want to use someone, this is the way how you think you're going to survive on this planet. And is there a big difference? I mean, if we compare Soviet propaganda, it was trying to push a particular idea, a particular concept of how to live, almost a belief system, and the fact that many Russians didn't believe it, they knew it was nonsense. So you had this dissonance between the propaganda and actually what people could see in their own lives. Now it's a little more pernicious, a little more toxic, isn't it? Because the propaganda is pushing a almost a purely imperialist objective. And as you say, it has elements of genocide there as well. But the idea of imperialism is quite attractive to many Russians. So you no longer have this dissonance between the propaganda and um, you know, how some people will perceive it, in Russia at least. It's a very interesting and good question uh, because I, I, it, uh, uh, it's coming to my mind uh, at least two aspects that I want to share. First is definitely it's much more toxic and it's much more to- toxic for everybody because, uh, well, me as many people here in Ukraine, I was born in Soviet Union and uh, I uh, I lived about uh, 10 years of my life, which I don't remember, of course, very good, but well, it's obvious. It's obvious that this is the history. This is how things are going. And uh, even in the worst Soviet times, uh, there was no any, you know, uh, there was no any narrative in schools, in kindergartens in universities that we're going to nuke someone. You know, we're going to nuke someone because this is what we want to do. This is how we survive on this planet. The Soviet Union was built on the history of the World War II, which was the greatest trauma the humanity ever had. And Soviet Union, including Ukraine, has lost about 50 million people in this trauma. Ukraine has lost about eight something million people. So it, it is ridiculous to like to figure out to, to, to think that someone in Soviet Union could say such words on TV that we're gonna nuke someone. This is that was that was uh, haram. I don't yeah. I don't know. There's a red line, absolutely. Yeah, 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 it's 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 beyond everything. It's like you you're not even insane, you are criminal. But in the same time, when we when we're talking about the toxic environment for the information space, uh, now we feel this toxicity because of the absolutely interconnection of different information flows. We see this. We see this. We consume this. We consume this from the social media, from TV, from, from YouTube, from everywhere. And it's being toxic only when we consume it. So getting back to the issue of pluralism, and this is second aspect that I want to, to share with you. So uh, in certain way, 
I don't care whether Russians want to live in pluralism of thoughts or whether they want to be in, inside the kingdom with a totalitarian regime. If they want to make this choice, this is for them to make it. So if they want to live under the pressure of totalitarian uh, genocide inside the Russian Federation, okay, that will be it. Give it, give it that chance. The, with the only option that no one has to comply with this. Else, I mean, if Russians want it, let them have it. But Ukrainians, they do not want it. And we have it through the social polling. We have we see it through the two revolutions uh, in uh, like 10, 12 years, in 2004 and in 2013, 14. Uh, we can see it through absolutely different actions that are very visible. It's not in the media even. It's not even in the, you know, when you go somewhere in line to buy a beer, uh, I mean, in a bar, in, in a supermarket, and you see how people behave. They know that they can, uh, they, uh, they can defend their rights uh, to get the product they want. Uh, they can uh, make, uh, you know, a discussion, uh, even, even uh, uh, some kind of a fight with, uh, with, uh, with uh, even a history teachers if they want. If they don't want, if they, if they don't want uh, some guy to teach uh, their child uh, for some things that they dislike. This is not neither bad nor wrong, nor no no good. It's it's just how people accept the rules. So, so how did that emerge? I mean, this is fascinating to me because Ukraine's been independent for thirty years since nineteen ninety one, and it just so happened that nineteen ninety one nineteen ninety two is the first year I actually visited Russia, um, and at that point you're emerging from the same political system. You're emerging from the same sea of propaganda, the same textbooks, the same version of history. 30 years on, however, Ukraine is a radically different society than, than, than Russian, despite superficially there being material similarities in, say, Kiev, Moscow, there's a you know high level of affluence, etc. But fundamentally, there's, there's some really important social and political differences, aren't they? How, how did that evolution happen that they drew so far apart? This is another absolutely great questions we worked on it days and nights you cannot even imagine how much time we spend on the understanding of this issue because uh this is a real uh this is really a thing how we can like understand this because we had the, the same question how for example how poland can uh, how poland could go so far from from the you know from this uh, socialistic uh, mm. camp uh, how they can evolve so quickly. Uh, the same is for the Baltic states, how they mm -hmm. could like create such a nice uh, patterns of behavior inside and so on and so forth. And then we st and then of course the, the, top, the part of the job was how to find out uh, what is the biggest difference between Ukrainians and Russians. And uh, uh, it's, it reminds me about one case, it just, um, you know, like, like a story from, from life. Uh, and uh, I think I, I will tell it to you. Um, we were going to Mariupol, the city that is uh, on the Azov Sea. It is now absolutely destroyed and uh, yeah. occupied. Uh, the, we expect that uh, we will maybe, we, we, will, we will not have the real number of uh, victims and death toll uh, in next several years because, well, the, the level of the violence there was just absolutely, absolutely unpre unprecedented. But the story was that 
we went there to arrange a certain conference and the roundtable and the seminar in the Mariupol State University. Uh, again, uh, about the disinformation, the, about the cybersecurity and stuff. And uh, my colleague, who is uh, a professor of the Kiev uh, Institute of the International Relationship, he said to me, Dima, just pay attention when we make stops on the train stations, when we go from Kiev to Mariupol. And the, the road from Kiev uh, to Mariupol on the railway takes about 20 hours. Uh, a, a, a really a big one because well because of the because infrastructure is poor you know the the trains are not very very fast and uh, there are many stops so we going on the train discussing some different things and then we when we have a stop we go out of the uh, of the train of, of the wagon um, to have a cigarette or to have a, you know to buy a beer or to 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 see what is happening and uh, we seen that on the each station there are some different people who selling something i mean you know uh, i i don't know it might not be allowed in the united states or european union but in ukraine it's still available so some babushkas some grannies mm -hmm. uh, children they just coming selling uh, uh some you know stuff like beer like uh, like uh, um, cakes anything and then and then there is a place there is a station somewhere in the middle of the way when it's stopping when you're going out of the train and no one is coming no one is selling anything and then this professor told me dima look so uh there is a really a problem in this country because some people who live on the same territory, on the same country, they know that they have future in their own hands. So if they want to eat another day, they have to go to buy a beer for $1 to go to the train and sell it for $2. This is how it works in all the world. You're doing some stuff, you're getting some money and you're ruling your life. And then, there is a point in this country when you cross it, you see that people expecting that someone will get them salaries, that someone will bring them some decisions for their life. When someone will will go to them and say, "Okay, uh, uh, I know what you have, how you have to behave to become happy, become healthy, and so." Uh, in exchange for this knowledge, you have to give me your freedom. So you have to behave like I told you, and you will be okay. So, and this is a real, real thing. I, in my humble opinion, this is that picture. It was so simple for me that mm. I realized that really, well, uh, this is about how people think. And again, the second question: Why is this happening? In my humble opinion, this is again happening because of the psychological traumas, because some people they carry this trauma through centuries through uh, dozens of years because of the you know the since uh, 1654 when there was an agreement with russian federation uh, with russian empire sorry uh, that well ukraine becoming the part of uh, this this empire or whatever and uh, then you have um, how many like 400 years of problems uh, because first there was the different decrees how to make Ukrainian language not available on this territory, so you cannot uh, 
uh, speak Ukrainian language. It was uh, Yemsky Ukaz, Yemsky decree. Uh, it was different different documents from the Russian Tsar. Then uh, you have uh, uh, First World War One, First World War, uh, in which my grand grandfather participated. Then you have uh, Holodomor, the general side of mm-hmm. um, manufactured genocide in this territory. Then you have World War Two. Uh, and eight millions of Ukrainians sacrificed their lives in World War II. And then you have the Soviet Union, which like 70 years of trauma for, for all Ukrainians, because this is the same empire. And so in the end of the day, all this traumatic experience uh, led us to a situation when we have to either, either to overcome it and uh, to get this experience for growth, or to preserve this experience and uh, um, think in paternalistic way that to survive, we have to delegate the belief in our future to someone who is wiser than us, who is powerful than us, who, 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 who can tell us, I am your leader and you will obey. And unfortunately, this is not... Uh, not full answer, but uh, uh, it's uh, you know coming to my mind because we we uh, really worked on this uh, many for for big amount of time, and uh, uh, this is about how the trauma works, and mm. this is about how different historical paths uh, were uh, you know were uh, were made by Russian people uh, that also the the territory was under the. Mongolia Tatar ego much more than uh, than uh, Ukraine the Kiev and Rus was mm-hmm. uh, how Ukraine was connected and how the uh, you know the right bank of the Dnipro River uh, the territory on the right bank how it was connected to the European traditions mm. uh, to Polish traditions to Lithuanian traditions uh, the Lithuanian uh, Lithuanians also were a, a kind of empire and uh, they were also you know, it's it's about how this history works mm. in ages, in many, many years. And unfortunately, Ukraine became a country where you have this point when you go in outside of the train and no one is coming to you because people, maybe they are not motivated. Maybe they do not know that you can rule your future just selling a bottle of beer because this is so simple. You buy for one dollar, you sell mm. for two dollars. And this is how you feed your family. This is how you can plan your next day. And you work and, hard. I mean, it's it's yeah, not easy, yeah. but you work hard and, yeah. and you, you build it up from there. But, but this is your hands. This, this this is your decision. This is how you 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 can do it. You can do something more complicated. You can you you can do anything. You can you, you can you know I I don't know. You can like wash cars. You mm. can launch the spaceships like Elon Musk. So no, I saw this. I saw this happening in the 90s in Russia. I saw people starting to, uh, you know, take some of that future into their hands, going out, working hard. Um, Many of them complained. You know, a lot were not particularly happy about what had happened in the 90s. And it was chaotic and it was hard. You know, and overnight, all your savings, all your money would have been just disappeared from some, you know, currency change the central government did. But at the same time, I think there are other people who felt quite liberated with that, the ability to go and earn and accumulate money. And they started buying apartments, doing them up, you know, changing not only 
the basics of life, but starting to add sort of, uh, you know, expression to that uh, cultural expression as they got more money and accumulated. But at some point in the 2000s, Russia seems to have moved back to the point where they're going to take their responsibility, take their, um, you know, take that kind of political motivation and hand it back to somebody. Uh, and that that seems to have, have happened. And then, you know, when NTV and, and when other outlets were shut down, there was barely a protest. I mean, some people would say, well, that's not fair. And some people did come out on the streets. 2012, there were protests, but they never reached a kind of critical mass where protest could change anything. Could you describe Euromaidan and, and, and in Ukraine? Because there have been many critical points where actually a critical mass of people have put enough time and effort in to actually change the political environment. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It's about the critical mass. Uh, and uh, um, the number of this critical mass is not big. Well, actually, we, we also counted it's it's about from 7 to 13% of, of population. That's Only. small, very small, in fact. Yeah, yeah it's uh, a, a, this number is, shows that this is the active minority, as, as for example, my colleague uh, Valery Pekari, who is uh, uh, also uh, a brilliant facilitator and, and leader, who is saying about this. This is the, the active minority that, and he, saw, he says it's very, very uh, interesting, um, the little minority is giving you the direction you go. Uh, the big majority is giving you the speed we, <laughs> we, mm. which, which, which you used to go. So, uh, and this uh, uh, little minority that uh, used to like stand, and basically these two Maidans in 2004 and 2014s, um, in, some, in some view, it was the same people. It was the same so the same people that understood that we made a, we made a fault or we we made a mistake when we didn't control the previous time. Mm. So we have to do the this homework again. Uh, in some terms, the new generation that came to Euromaidan in 2014, it was the children. Uh, they were the, the the children of those who went to 2004 uh, because they the the parents uh, told them. Mm. how it works so not not uh, how the revolution works but how you can lead your own future that if someone is saying to you that no i will decide how will you behave and and what your future will will be look like you just stand up and say no so uh and the cri critical mass is of course very very important uh on the other hand um the in my humble opinion, this is what is very, very valuable now for the understanding of the future of Russia. Uh, there was a, um, a thing that someone calls oligarchic consensus. So consensus between different uh, uh, rich people that provide some uh, impact on the political environment of the country. And uh, the power and authorities in Ukraine always in last 30 years was the result of the, this oligarchic consensus, either the mm. clash or consensus or some kind of balance. And uh, in Ukraine, oligarchs are maybe one of the biggest uh, sources of corruption. 
on the other hand, uh, they are being attacked by the uh, civil society. This uh, uh, little minority that uh, they, that you know used to mm. go on the streets and say no. And the corruption yes, that... against the judiciary, because the you, you the oligarch class exactly. has also had a deforming effect yeah. on the on the judicial and court uh, proceedings, haven't yeah. they? Um, uh, not not also for, forgetting about the um, the legislation branch and the the executive, mm. but judicial is also very very and still critical. Um, on the other hand, I'm trying to uh, to figure out how to say it. In my humble opinion, what has happened in Russia is a bit different from what has happened in Ukraine with this oligarchy consensus, because uh, Vladimir Putin, as a president was also the part of oligarchy consensus that was in Russia. And there was a time that called this Simibayarshina, uh, which is like seven, seven, uh, uh, seven big uh, uh, finance uh, tops, uh, men that, uh, that make a decision and so on and so forth. So maybe partially this is a fairy tale, partially this is truth, but uh, he was the result of this consensus, but then this consensus shifted to people who worked in KGB. So now the majority of elite, of political elite of Russian Federation consists of the KGB people. KGB is the dead organization with that, uh, uh, with that uh, ideals and values and, and stuff. Uh, I started in, as I, I know because I, I've been to, not to KGB, but I've seen those people working in KGB. I've seen, Absolutely brilliant personalities who worked in uh, in intelligence bodies all over the world in Africa, in, in, you know, in uh, in uh, South America and stuff, and they were absolutely wise, intelligent, you know, uh, uh, passionate uh, and and stuff. But uh, when you look at those people, you understand that everything they fought in their lives and everything they committed to. Is already dead because Soviet Union is not existing anymore, and you cannot use the time machine to go to the past. And this is what these people are doing, unfortunately. So now, all the Russian society, all the Russian oligarchs—if they have that now—I don't believe in Russian oligarchs because Russian oligarch now is not a businessman; he is appointee. So this is a person who is personally appointed by Vladimir Putin to own some assets in Russian Federation. If Vladimir Putin will change his mind, so this guy is done. So he will just be killed or, you know, to uh, or jailed or whatever. So uh, there are no oligarchs now in Russian Federation. That, that, you know, I don't think that's well understood in the West. I don't think that's well understood in, in the press when you look at the press narratives as well uh, in the West is that, you know, we tend to still think of Russia as an oligarchy, but it's not an evolutionary stage onto anything else. In fact, it's been shown that those oligarchs have no power, no political influence Absolutely. whatsoever. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. No connection even with Putin anymore. They don't they can't get an audience with him or get their points of view across. Do you think, therefore, in Ukraine, this oligarchical stage is actually an evolutionary stage towards a more pluralistic society? Perhaps it was sort of inevitable. Perhaps it was even necessary. But you are moving from that stage of evolution to the next one, whereas Russia's descended back into 
I think of it as a monocracy. That's where you have a single individual who perhaps represents a very tiny elite, which is the FSB, and every single decision in that society is informed just by that tiny, tiny group of people. Um, me personally, I don't know if we could have another path uh, because you know it's not about only the society; it's about economy, it's about the ability to to you know to uh, to grow the business, to grow the money money amount in in Ukraine, and to deliver the products and to, to create some kind of uh, industry. So everything. This that I'm that I'm mentioning, it's uh, it was crucial for the uh, making Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, normal state, not mm. a failed state, but normal state, yeah. and maybe partially. However, I don't know. I'm not an economist. Partially, mm. it was it was made because of these big businessmen uh, whom we call the oligarchs. Mm. Now and nowadays, for me personally. Uh, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and you know George Soros—they are the same oligarchs for me as as everyone else, just more evolved, more efficient, more uh, more intelligent, more uh, responsible for the future of of, of this planet. Uh, Ukrainian oligarchs, uh, yes, they still play in a great role now. There is a populistic uh, legislation in Ukraine that has been uh, promoted by. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky and by uh, NSDC about the list of the oligarchs. Me personally, I'm too skeptical about this, about mm. listing someone, about making someone like feel uncomfortable. Uh, however, you know, I think that again, this is this is again the big part of evolution, evolution of the country. Uh, who is going from the post-Soviet state to a normal state and then to European state? Uh, Euromaidan and revolution of dignity, as well as the Russian uh, um, Russian invasion and Russian hybrid warfare in 2014 and uh, full-scale invasion in 2022, this just a time machine for Ukraine. So everything is happening, you know, like in uh, five times uh, faster than it it could be. So uh, just because people don't have another option to how to survive. So now I think that we are much more closer to be a European state than even the normal state, because this is again, again, the narrative that we uh, we're trying to promote, that we are not going anywhere. We're just getting back home because Europe, the European values family for Ukraine is, is somewhere we belong. And unfortunately, because of the clash of empires, uh, because of the decisions after the World War One, when uh, uh, majority of the uh, people uh, in uh, in Eastern Europe they were allowed to organize their own states, Ukraine was not allowed to organize its own state because after uh, this uh, Austrian-Hungarian Empire has failed, so uh, very many countries became independent, and that was a very great step in democratic way of the of these countries. So now we have just late for about a one century because, well, we were forced to be where we not belong. <clears throat> um, as for Russia, uh, again, this this is another thing. This is the scenario that they, uh, this is the kind of public agreement 
that they decided and signed for uh, for together for some like 20 something years ago back in 2000 or 1999 when uh, uh, the most popular narrative was you give me all your freedoms i give you safety stability was... yes economic stability in return for yeah. your your individual uh, rights yeah. basically and maybe unfortunately for the country like uh, russian federation maybe that was a uh, 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 um you know like a fourth step back in 90s back in the for example for for a federation where it, when it was the federation now russia is not federation united states is a federation because each state has its own legislation and can preserve the rights of the people of the state uh, in front of the federal government Russia is not a federation because none of the subject of the federation has any kind of um, rights to elect uh, the local leader because all the local leader in Russia they've been appointed as well as uh, oligarchs are so everyone in Russia is appointed so it's basically it's not a federation in political aspect uh, and uh, again it it is because this public agreement that they made, uh, this unofficial agreement that Putin will give them some kind of uh, stability and safety, and they will give him all their freedoms. And I think that in certain moments, they just failed to get them back. Mm -hmm. So yes, they needed stability and freedom badly, but in certain moments, they have forgotten how to take them back. And this is my biggest narrative also for European states. When I was telling them in 2014, since 15, 16, since 17, it's great when you have an ability to dance with a beer because it's a great fun. It's a great fun. It's, it's many, a big amount of money. Everyone is throwing money at you because it's a fun. It's very, very like big show. But you can miss a moment when a bear will bite your hand or leg or even your head or worse so yes this yeah this is just like it is and um coming back to something you said earlier because i think there's an absolutely sort of fascinating topic here which is media literacy so all of the sort of black pr all of the propaganda none of this is going to go away in fact it's going to intensify in your point of view so there's no point in fighting it head on there's no point in even engaging with individual narratives it's all about teaching people how to read materials how to understand digital information is there a demographic divide though because i spoke recently to valeria kovtun of the organization filter and she said that, yes, you can teach all age groups these techniques for digital literacy, but actually they're only really going to be effective in a certain demographic, a younger demographic. So practically speaking, how would you how would you roll out, uh, you know, this media literacy uh, campaign? You know, talking about media literacy, first question that I'm, I'm trying to solve is uh, how we see the result. What aim we 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 gonna we gonna achieve uh, if we will work in this? What we what we want to achieve in this? In my humble opinion, uh, this stuff about mythical literacy and critical thinking, it's a way how we empower people to make a choice. You have to be free before you making a choice because this is how you can run your life. 
because of the choice you can either you can either drink beer or vodka you can either go to um go into sports or you can uh, sit uh, at home on, uh, watching tv but this is your choice this is and in my humble opinion this is the uh, definition of democracy itself mm. so you we we empowering people to make a choice once you made a choice so if you made a choice consciously uh and you for example you want to live in uh, in a totalitarian state and empire so it's only on your own so why make people do not believe in their choice but the issue is that we have to discover how to build an uh, ecosystem to empower people how they can make a choice and this is about the critical thinking because critical thinking and middle literacy making you doubt in your own choice day by day and if you doubt you can evolve if you doubt that your choice is right you like measuring everything you make another choice and stuff and again it's getting back us to the issue that this is uh, like a, a part of the definition of the democracy itself. And a people in their people... 20s and 30s, people in their 20s and 30s are going to be perhaps a little easier to work with, a little more open-minded, whereas their 50s, 60s, exactly. 70s, well, is look, that tougher? I, I, I'm talking about this for a reason. Mm -hmm. In my humble opinion, it doesn't, uh, it, do it doesn't matter whom we work with. It doesn't matter because, yes, People in uh, you know of the older age, the, the older they become, the 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 less they are flexible and make any choices because uh, there's a history behind them. But still, I know many many cases uh, and uh, pro and contra that uh, even elderly people they are uh, all the way they were talking Russian, they were you know saying that we have to be in peace with Russian Federation, and after the full scale invasion. In one day, like that, they started to talk only Ukrainian with mistakes, with with you know, with with funny uh, funny thing. But everyone respects them for this, so they just changed they 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 mind. They want to be Ukrainian just because they are attacked, and this is how they preserve themselves. This is how they feel safety. Again, it's about the choice, uh, but this choice was forced. This choice was forced. If Vladimir Putin would not invade back in 2014. Maybe we we would not talk with you because Ukraine was still a pro-Russian state. And again, this again getting back to democracy. If people on this territory they thinking that it's better for them to you know to stick to orthodox uh, beliefs, to Russian language or whatever. But again, it's not about democracy. It's about invasion. It's about the ability of Vladimir Putin to take all these people to the past. He wants to take all of them to the past because in the past, he is a great guy of KGB working in Germany. He has uh, his, uh, uh, you know, he has his, his thing hard and uh, he's, he's very uh, active and stuff and stuff. So he just want everybody to get back in the past. So this is impossible. And he's using his force for this. So the, this, again, has nothing to do with the media literacy. We don't have to fight with the fakes. We have to fight with a guy who, who uses the missiles to take everyone to the past. If we're talking about critical thinking and media literacy, about instrumental things, for me personally, it doesn't matter whom we work with. Yes, 
minors and children and pupils and students, they are very flexible, not because they are young, because we can make them educate. We can, you know, literally say, you go to university because I'm your father and you, you have to like evolve. Uh, we cannot do this to people in their 20s or 30s, but we can uh, make it sexy, make it interesting for them, make, make it fun, make it like gamificate. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about like, you know, elderly people or, or like 50 plus or, you know, 40 plus as, as me, myself. So maybe it is certain, certain instruments how to make it profitable for them. Uh, they don't care about games, about maybe about sad, being sexy, about, about whatever. They are okay with themselves. So let's make it profitable for them. This is an instrument and we can find this instrument. So it doesn't matter what we and how we, we, we work with them. And do you think, I mean, I know we're getting to the end now, but my final question really, you've painted a picture of Ukraine being fundamentally forward-looking despite there being many challenges over the years many revolutions setbacks moves forward and of course even after the war is finished uh one assumes with ukraine being victorious there will be still further setbacks and advances in, a, in an evolutionary process but fundamentally ukraine is forward-looking russia however seems to be looking backwards i mean that can't last there has to be some change in russia that reorientates itself to the future uh, once again. But that may be many years away. That may happen tomorrow. It's inherently unpredictable now, isn't it? What's going to happen there? Um, I would put it in a bit another way because I think that there is a different logic in these you know, processes of thinking how the future can look like. Uh, Ukrainians, in my humble opinion, and uh, I, I have a ground for, for saying this, in my humble opinion, Ukrainians are the people uh, who have a focus inside of them. So it's like, you know, it's, it's more, in certain way, it's more, yeah, you know, like, like uh, far east, eastern, eastern mental, mentality when, uh, when you concentrate about what is happening inside you, what is happening in your country with disregard of anything happening uh, outside. In Ukraine, in my humble opinion, future is impossible until these new traumas will be overcome because all Ukrainian history of the last four centuries is a total traumatic experience. And this full-scale Russian invasion into Ukraine, this is another Absolutely nightmare, traumatic experience because of Bucha, Izum, Mariupol, Melitopol, Kherson, Kharkiv, uh, so many cities and so many victims of, of, of this. So what Ukraine should do and Ukrainians will have to do because they, in, in, uh, you are saying about the growth and setbacks and, and you know, it's impossible if, if we're talking, for example, about individual you cannot push him forward before he worked on his on or her trauma inside him because it's just impossible and now people are very aware of it because you know they're going to psychiatrists uh, become a new like normal culture because you're working about yourself it's about mm. you it's about how you how you working on yourself how you how you make yourself healthy so if you're talking about ukraine it's about how ukraine will overcome the trauma the first 
the first option and the first um, step how Ukraine can overcome trauma is the absence of the permanent threat to Ukrainian nation. The permanent threat to Ukrainian nation is Russian Federation, despite of the fact who is ruling this country. This is like absolutely axioma. This, this is, this is the, even no any discussion about this. If tomorrow, for example, Khodorkovsky or Navalny or anyone else will take the power in Russian Federation after Vladimir Putin, and Vladimir Putin will disappear somewhere, you have at least 50 to 100,000 people on the highest management point with certain mindset that you will not be ready to eliminate or to dismiss or whatever, because they will remain. Which return us to the thought about the so-called Russian resentment. So, as the World War II happened after the World War I because of the German resentment, because of the ability of the new Hitler, the same thing, Russian Federation, if not being punished now, will invade again, which getting us back to the past again. So, this is what you're uh, talking about, the setbacks, the, about the the the, the the steps uh, uh, that we how we will have to take back in, in this in this past. Mm. So, my uh, recipe, if, if I may, or, or my my thought is very simple. If we want Ukraine to succeed, the first that should be done, Russian Federation should be dissolved and reconstructed into the Confederation. That will lead us to the very many threats like the uh, control on the nuclear weapons, uh, control on the local uh, regional uh, potential conflicts. But in the same time, that will bring very many advantages like relief from the Baltic states, relief from the east, uh, east uh, flank of NATO, relief from Finland, relief from Poland. So all these countries they will be able to invest these big amounts of money in the education, in development, in economy, instead of investing them in security. Instead and of Georgia, Moldova, them. there's the whole Georgia, massive Moldova, list. You name it, yeah. And even Belarus, you know, Belarus could be a tolerant, pluralistic Absolutely. state without Kremlin Absolutely. interference. Because, because, the, because Vladimir Putin is, is the donor for what mm. is happening in Belarus. If not Vladimir Putin, so uh, it was uh, all uh, half of 2020. I was begging to Western, uh, Western, uh, you know, thinkers saying that you're sanctioning the wrong man. Mm. Sanctioning Lukashenko will not give you a thing. You have to sanction Putin instead of Lukashenko. Mm. So then Lukashenko will turn back to you. Yeah. So for me, first step: how to how Ukraine could recover, how uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians can um, overcome all these traumas is like relieving it from the existential threat from Moscow. If Moscow will be the center of confederation, but voluntarily confederation, when these identities, political identities, countries, regions, they will voluntarily go into confederation, not as the, you know, as you my servant and that's all. Uh, then, yes, we will all only we know from this, and then that will make the uh, uh, the space for the Ukrainian development for the future. 
And if, of course, uh, that confederation doesn't come to, to pass, then we could be looking at the new Iron Curtain on the border of Ukraine. Once it's won back its territory, uh, you know, a new uh, fault line in confrontation between the East and West. I'm totally sure about this. And with only one uh, one difference uh, in this in in this case, um, not me uh, should have to fight with Russians, but my son who is now six years old. And to prevent my son fighting on the next war with Russians, I will like uh, give my life for the uh, dissolvement of Russian Federation now because now we. Either we have to kill all, all of them, not to prevent them kill my son, or we have to define how we can solve this situation and how the Soviet Union has to be dissolved till, till scratch because we didn't make our job right. And that and vision open. for a new Russia is not something that Western governments are uh, describing, is it? I mean, they're staying away from that topic. And yet, I think Absolutely. anyone who studied Russian history realizes that only a dissolution of the Russian Federation will solve some is, of these problems. Absolutely, absolutely, because it is it is very understandable, very visible, because it's scary. It is scary, it is risky, it is like, hell no. Hmm. And yes, of course, uh, uh, when I'm saying about my child, uh, then uh, uh, leaders of big political uh, uh, nations and big big countries, they should care about their nations, not about my child. So my child can go to another war if they will be okay. So this is also known. We have to accept this because real politics is not going anywhere. But this is my job to assure them that in the uh, the, the Soviet Union dissolved and it's the Soviet uh, the Soviet Union uh, ceased to to exist with the same big risks, enormous risks for everybody. George Bush. The, the the president of the United States came to Ukraine in August uh, 1991, uh, speaking in the parliament, delivering the speech, which uh, then uh, was called the chicken speech, chicken chicken Kiev speech, mm. and it was written by Condoleezza Rice, who then became a state secretary of the United States. And George Bush said to Ukrainians, "So you have to avoid being too nationalistic." being too nationalist because the Soviet Union is in the end of the day not a very bad uh, bad formation because there is a uh, Gorbachev there is Perestroika and then everything so you we will uh, we, we can like uh, support your democracy and your democratic path inside the Soviet Union in three weeks you know what has happened Soviet Union ceased to exist mm -hmm. and Ukraine became independent and we have the same risks now so it's better to face those risks, not to close our eyes, say, no, 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 this is impossible. Russia is big. Russia is strong. Russia is, it can, it can be real in like 10 years from now. It can be real in the next Monday. This is, you know, this is what's happening with Soviet Union. Next Monday, we can, we can see like the processes that like will like bring nightmares to us because we will not be able to understand where the nuclear weapon go. This is the same situation. And I think just to just to conclude then, I mean, what Ukrainian victory is far, far more certain, I think. What happens in Russia at this point is extremely uncertain. And to see Germany and other countries basically hedging their bets, 
trying to still hold back from tackling the Russian problem, but probably in the hope of resuming trade, resuming normal relations. That's just not helpful. That's not going to help anyone in future. Uh, have I got that? I've got that interpretation more or less right, I hope. It's also very simple to me because, uh, as I told you, uh, it's the trade between the future and the past. So there are some political elites that would like to keep earning money from uh, trading with people from the past because it's very simple. Uh, it's, uh, it's you know, just money just flowing, the gas just flowing. And the same is with the Rejepardagan, the same is with... So the old elites, they're okay with this. Trading with the past is very profitable, mm. but trading with the past enables the past to conquer other fields you know if if it would be if it would be possible just to make money with the past not taking the past to other fields like democracy freedom of speech like uh, you know media literacy of fakes or disinformation that would be great and no one would care because you make money with the people from the past and other people like they like doing the culture and doing the information space and media with the people from the future Unfortunately, this is impossible. You have either choose or just step aside. Well, Dimitra, I think these insights are absolutely invaluable and I really appreciate you spending the time. I know you're pulled up next to a, uh, a road in Kiev at the moment. Yeah, Thank you so much for spending Thank the time you. to speak. Slava Ukrainian. Hello, I'm Slava. Goodbye.